Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, whatever happened to that contact tracing app? Are we going to see that as things open up? A new report from Global News says the Trudeau government's deal with the We Charity was with their real estate holding foundation, not the charity. And the President of the United States flip-flops on his decision to wear a mask. Will America buy in now? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. If my growing hair covers my face... Does that count as a mask? Hmm? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Honestly, the kid looks like it from the Adams family. I can't... Is he looking at me? Is he walking away from me? I can't tell. <laughs> it's... It's it, ear? Is that an ear? Is that a nose? I'm I'm, I'm not quite sure. Uh, good afternoon. It's twelve oh nine. They're open. I know they're open, but I don't know. It's hair so long you can't hear me speaking. Week number nineteen of the Scott Thompson Home Show. All right. Uh, we've talked uh, many times on this show about contact tracing and what happens post COVID nineteen. How we keep ourselves safe, and as we gradually start to reopen uh, the country, the province, etc., various regions. Uh, how do we keep track of all of this, especially as we're seeing a slight uptick, which I guess was predicted, uh, a slight uh, uh, slight uptick in uh, cases over the weekend. Uh, again, kind of leveling out at this point. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, tech analyst, uh, and talk about this, because I, I think it was uh, back in July this was promised. Carmi, thanks for taking the time. Hope you're doing well. Oh, Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So contra- uh, contact tracing was supposed to be ready the beginning of July, no? Yeah, it was called COVID Alert, and uh, we were ready for it to be released on July 2nd. That was the, the day that it was supposed to go live in Ontario. Ontario, of course, was going to be a pilot for the rest of the country. They, this is a federal program. They want to release it across Canada, but they first wanted to try it out in Ontario, get some feedback on what works, what doesn't, how they can improve it and then upgrade the app and then release it nationally. But uh, three weeks tomorrow was the day it was originally supposed to go live here. It did not. Uh, we heard that morning that they were delaying it because they wanted to work. Uh, they, they, there was still some more work to do with the federal government, which suggests that during development they came across some issues that they simply could not resolve by July 2nd. It's been almost three weeks. We hadn't heard anything until this week uh, when Premier Ford said he thinks possibly uh, it is going to finally show its face on Friday. Again, I'm not going to bet the mortgage on it, but we'll see. Um, and it can, it can't come anytime soon. We are kind of you know we are on the we're on that cusp. We're moving to stage three through most of the province. Um, at some point, we're going to continue to move in that direction. Contact tracing as a discipline is absolutely critical to allowing us to lead a more open, kind of free lifestyle. Uh, out there before a vaccine is available. So you can't have one without the other. The the governments, the provinces silence on the contact tracing app for much of the month. Uh, I've been sitting here wondering what's going on. It is a little bit disturbing. So what are the issues with the app and, and who is responsible for rolling this out? Is this the federal government or the provincial government? You know, it's interesting. They, they keep sort of passing the buck. Uh, Trudeau, of course, says nothing. He's probably too busy dealing with the we uh, uh, 
scandal. Uh, but Ford keeps uh, insisting, and rightly so. It is a federal program. So this is a, you know, Ottawa is running the show, uh, but they've selected Ontario as their guinea pig. And so everyone's got involvement here, but ultimately it's Ottawa that makes the final decision. Uh, Shopify and BlackBerry are the two main companies that have been uh, tapped to develop it. So their developers are working on an app that, you know, does the job it was expected to do and it does it safely, uh, does not violate our privacy. They haven't said anything. We haven't heard anything at all about, uh, you know, the technical issues that they may or may not have run into that have caused this delay. Um, Usually you hear something. There's been nothing, no rumors at all, uh, which is kind of unusual for an app of this scale and this scope. So I kind of like to hear a little bit more. But, you know, again, uh, this is unprecedented. We've never had an app that's tasked to do this on this scale. So, you know, the fact that there's silence means that, you know, you know, the government really probably has a worse story to tell than they would like. Um, But, you know, hopefully this Friday is the day when we finally get to see it um, and start using it and, more importantly, start developing some experience with it. In other words, figure out what is broken, what needs fixing. Give the developers the insight they need to make this the act that it needs to be so that you and I and all of our listeners and everyone in Ontario and ultimately across Canada can lead uh, a relatively safe life over the next year or so. Uh, my next question, Carmi, which you already answered, is, you know, what are you hearing on the inside as the reasons for this holdup? Is it a technical issue? Is it a security issue? Is it a, uh, is it a protocol issue? But obviously you're not hearing anything on that. What does that tell you? Well, I mean, I think what it tells me is that whatever those problems were, were fairly significant. I mean, a three-week at the very least, uh, delay for an app uh, is, uh, you know, notable, especially one that was fast-tracked to, to be developed so quickly. That was developed on technology that is already out there. It's based on Google's and Apple's platform, uh, their notification platform that was announced in April and released in May. So, you know, this thing was moved to market fairly quickly, huge amount of hype and build-up, and then the morning of on July 2nd, everyone just hit the brakes and everyone went silent. So whatever it was, it wasn't just a, just a, you know a small thing. It was a, it was a showstopper. Uh, it could have something to do with privacy. We know that there have been concerns about privacy. Uh, the app is designed to minimize the risk of exposure uh, of our personal information, of location information, or anything like that. Uh, but at the same time, doesn't mean that there aren't vulnerabilities that weren't discovered along the way. We know Canada's privacy commissioner has expressed concerns and. Perhaps those uh, factored into the decision. They realized they, that they had left some privacy and data doors open that they did not intend to and needed to close them down. Um, there's also just the question of effectiveness. You know, at, at what level does it does it go off? In other words, if I just happen to pass someone quickly on the sidewalk, does that constitute um, a, a, a need for a notification, or does it need to be maybe I stop within six feet and chat with them for five minutes, for ten minutes, for twenty minutes? What are the thresholds that would that would kick off a notification? We've never done this before, so there really isn't an agreement on what is acceptable. So you want to have an app that is effective, but also doesn't generate so many false positives that nobody listens to it in the first place. And so there's a lot of tweaking, a lot of playing with it to make sure that it works. And I'm sure that whatever it is was fundamental to the way this app worked. It wasn't something they could just fix overnight. They probably had to go back to the drawing board um, and rebuild pieces of the app before they were confident releasing it into the public domain.
You know, you bring up a great point, Carmi, that I didn't think of regarding uh, false readings or fake readings and how that could create hysteria if all of a sudden everybody's app starts going off. Um, we, I just assume because these were the concerns way back at the beginning and that being privacy and security, uh, that that would be the main problem here that perhaps would delay this. But as, as you say, uh, in regard to finding the, the proper balance between uh, informing people and creating chaos. You know, and that's always the key. Whenever you're developing an app that's going to be used by millions of people, you kind of have to, you have to account for all the different ways that it's going to be used and misused. Um, because, uh, you know, people out in the public, not techie folks, not developers, not folks who are familiar with technology, but your mom, my mom, you know, everyday people who interact with technology in different ways, they're going to discover new ways to break this thing. And your app needs to reflect that. Uh, or it's going to fail miserably. You know, how many times does the uh, does the smoke alarm that is way too sensitive go off to the point that we either turn it off, some people will turn it off, or they start ignoring the alarm because oh, it, it goes off when my toast burns a little bit. Yeah. Well, when there's a fire, there's going to be a problem. And so when you put an app in the hands of millions of people, you have to account for all of those, what we like to call use cases. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, we didn't have a lot of time to do uh, a lot of that process before it was supposed to be released at the beginning of July. And unfortunately, sometimes when you rush developing an app, which is exactly what's happening here, you run into things that you could not have foreseen, and some of them are significant. Some of them are major, and they will stop you dead in your tracks. And I think that's what's happening here. Carmi, we've certainly seen uh, an uptick in numbers over the weekend. Uh, many are attributing this to uh, younger people, young adults uh, who are getting out and about. Uh, how does that factor into creating this app? How does it, because in a sense, it's like you're almost tailor-making it for them, are you not? Very much so. I mean, this you know, is what's driving the urgency, the fact that um, you know, first of all, all the data that we're seeing about the, where the infections are occurring in society now, uh, it's, it's driving younger. At the beginning of the, of the pandemic, it was all senior citizens, uh, you know, long-term care homes, uh, whereas now the demographics are definitely skewing younger as younger people, teens, early 20s, uh, you know, they're tired of being cooped up for months. They want to go to a bar. They want to hang out with their friends. And the infection rate is following that. It is especially critical, especially because these people are the ones who are most likely to own a smartphone. Um, so, you know, a, um, use of smartphones in this demographic approaches 100 percent, 88 percent across the board. Uh, but of course, it's affected by age group. Um, you can get the best possible data from these from from younger people. And because they're the ones who are heading out and exposing themselves potentially uh, more than other uh, age groups. It's especially critical that we have contact tracing to help track their activities, understand when they cross paths with others who may be infected, and use that knowledge to reduce the risk going forward. If we are going going to have any level of public activity over the months to come before a vaccine is available, a contact tracing app is absolutely crucial to that, especially so with younger users. Uh, We can't have our cake and eat it too, and this app can't come soon enough, especially for these people. Um, you know, interesting that earlier you were talking about how this app has to account for all scenarios, uh, whether you're at uh, the younger end of the spectrum or the older end and more technologically advanced than not. Uh, in other words, making it incredibly user friendly. But how do you also make it accurate enough 
and and um, I guess useful enough to engage the younger generation. Well, they've done a reasonable job of that. First of all, they stripped away all the things. In other words, it's, they're not trying to be all things to all people. They want this app to do one thing and do it well. In other words, don't don't give me location information. Don't add any more features. Just tell me when I've crossed paths with someone who's potentially infected long enough for that to be a problem, then set an alarm off. So it only uses Bluetooth. It turns off all other sensors. It only uses randomly generated anonymous numbers uh, to identify us. So it doesn't connect to contact information. So it's, it's arc architecture is relatively simple, um, and you only have to download it. It's strictly voluntary, so no one's going to force anyone to, to use this app. That's been made very clear from the start. Uh, but you download it once, you install it, and then you forget about it. It works in the background automatically. Um, as you're using your phone, you can reboot your phone. It doesn't matter. It'll still be there. That's absolutely crucial because nobody wants to fiddle with an app every single day. We, we're already using Facebook and, and Snapchat and TikTok and all the other apps to communicate with our friends. Nobody wants to have to open up this app and use it. If we do, the adoption rate is going to plummet. So the automation is absolutely crucial for this audience because they've already got enough on their plate and they've got enough worries. They don't want to have to worry about this nationally mandated app as well. Um, you know, is it working properly? Is it not? The more automated, the more reliable it is, the better. And that could also be part of it. This app is supposed to work properly on millions of phones in hundreds or even thousands of different configurations on all sorts of different networks across the country. You've got to test for that uh, because if it isn't reliable or like absolutely dead reliable, we're going to have a problem as well once it goes live. Better to fix it now than wait till later. So what happened? How much do we know about how this will act actually operate? Will we not know this until we actually see it? But for example, say you come in contact with somebody. Wah, does it go off immediately like an amber alert while the person's standing next to you? Uh, how does it? How do how do we receive this information? Yeah, obviously, without having seen the app, it's kind of hard to tell. But you know, we've sort of gotten little hints from. Uh, both Apple and Google, who designed the platform on which the app is built, as well as the federal government, when they originally announced their intentions to develop this national app in April, um, is that you would get a notification, whether it happens immediately or whether there's a bit of a delay, not sure. But they say it, it's like a text message. Your phone beeps or vibrates or something. You get a little notification saying that the app has determined that there has you have crossed paths with, you've come in, in, in uh, reasonable contact with someone who has tested positive. Uh, and then you're given a choice. You can either ignore the notification or you can choose to share that information with the national database. And when you do that, um, you know, what, it, what it'll do is it'll take your, you know, that notification, put it into the database and add to that, you know, knowledge base of who crossed whose path, uh, which is kind of what contact tracing is, is it creates this, this sort of almost like a spider web of who you came in contact with so they know who to, who to, who to let know you should call public health. It also has information. It'll share information based on where you live of how to contact public health officials in your area. And then, of course, you're given the choice to do that. And so that's really all it is. Tells you that there's been exposure, uh, gives you some information on what you should do next, and then gives you the option of whether you want to share that knowledge with the national database with which this app is, is connected. That is it. And it'll do that every single time you cross paths with someone when Bluetooth tells you, yeah, you've got an issue, go. Uh, obviously, you have to participate. Uh, you have to be all in in order for this to work. What happens if all of a sudden it goes off and it says, hey, you've been exposed, you've got this option. It's like, oh, I'm just going to sit down and put my head in the sand and pretend this never happened and not share the information. Does then the app become useless? 
Well, I mean, to, no, I mean, it's already served its purpose. If it tells you that you've been exposed, right. I mean, that in itself is you know, a bit of a victory because now at least you can modify your behavior. Maybe you aren't going to go out again. You're not going to expose yourself again. Right. It can point you in the right direction. If you choose not to share or to call public health, that's kind of on you, and you lose that opportunity to contribute to the community good. Of course, we always hope that all of us will participate to 100%. But even if we only go 10% of the way, we got notified, we modified our behavior, and we didn't do anything else. It's not ideal. Uh, it, it doesn't sort of allow the app to reach its full potential of limiting exposure to all of society. But it's certainly better than nothing, which is where we are right now. Right now, we have no knowledge at all. Even if, if we just have a little bit of awareness and we don't act on it, that's better than our current state. Carmi Levy has been with this tech analyst. Carmi, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Great speaking with you, speaking with you, Scott. You as well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, the we uh, scandal situation uh, seems to be getting more and more complicated with every passing day. Now it seems that there are two different uh, companies, two different holdings here uh, within the WE umbrella. And to talk about uh, all of this, Stuart Bell is with us, investigative journalist with Global News, and he is with us now. The latest Trudeau government contract uh, for $912 million student program was with WE Charities Real Estate Holding Foundation. And Stuart is with us now. Stuart, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, no problem. Uh, this is getting a little bit more complicated to follow as we go along. Uh, what do we know so far in regard to uh, what now appears to be two separate, different, or two different entities here? Yeah, it's becoming very uh, convoluted with a lot more questions that are coming up as we learn more. Um, what we found out is that um, the prime minister has been saying since the beginning that his uh, student volunteer uh, program contract was with the WE Charity. What we've discovered is actually it wasn't. The contract was with another charity called the WE Charity Foundation. Now, the um, so what is the WE Charity Foundation? Well, we started to look into that. It turns out the WE Charity Foundation is an entirely independent, separate charity that was set up to uh, basically hold the real estate of the WE Charity. It's it's uh, was only recently created. It was founded in 2018. It only became a charity registered with the government last year, and it's really um, has nothing. It's a it's a shell. It has accomplished nothing. Has no track record. Has no assets. Has a very minimal budget. And yet, for a variety of reasons, um, it was chosen to become the vehicle for this uh, 912 million dollar program that uh, the Prime Minister announced. So why would that money not go or go to a uh, the separate company, this foundation, and not the charity itself? Is, what's the reasoning for that? Well, it makes sense for uh, from the point of view of WE, which um, now WE has told us that as part of the deal with the government, they had to assume any liability for the student volunteers whose positions it was uh, administering. And so what we did is in order to protect its assets from any potential liabilities, for example, you know, if one of the student volunteers, um, if something happens to them, we're talking about um, positioning students in various volunteer opportunities at a time in a pandemic. If there were any sort of civil actions against we that results from that, 
their um, their assets would be protected. And we uh, has a lot of assets. They own over forty million dollars worth of real estate in Canada. And so, from their point of view, it makes sense to um, to have the government contract with a separate charity that is distinct from the We Charity and that doesn't really have any assets. Uh, what is more puzzling is why the government would agree to that and how that serves the Canadian public. And uh, there's a lot of questions that are now being asked about that, about why the government would enter into almost a $1 billion agreement with a charity that has no record, no assets, uh, was only established last year. So that's what we're, we're waiting and, to uh, hear today. And- and also, uh, whether Morneau or Trudeau knew of any of this. Obviously, th- that is a pertinent question. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> if you've been following this, you'll see that all of their statements have been talking about their agreement with the We Charity. There's been no mention that I've seen of this We Charity Foundation, uh, which is, as I said, a completely separate legal entity from the We Charity. Uh, in fact, in the, the Canada Revenue Agency documentation about the We Charity Foundation, they explicitly say that they're not a branch or in any way um, a subsidiary of any other charity. So um, is this something the, government, the Prime Minister knew about, or was it simplified by his staff, or, or what? We just don't know. But the truth is that we now know that the Prime Minister's statements on this, um, this agreement have been incorrect. They didn't enter into a contract with a wheat charity. It was with a separate shell that, as I said, really has no history or uh, or track record to speak of. So, uh, obviously, good idea for the We Charity as it protects their assets. On the other hand, is this lack of due diligence on the government's part for not uh, seeing this? Yeah, well, as you say, it makes sense for We Charity. They would want to protect their uh, substantial real estate holdings. Does this leave um, the government but, liable signing such a deal? Would it? Would this put more onus on the government with we signing this, or, or with we uh, creating this this separate foundation? Yeah, well, one of the we spoke to one of the top charity experts, uh, charity lawyers in Canada, Mark Bloomberg, who uh, made that exact point that in fact um, uh, this could be a problem for the government for the public in the sense that. Um, you know, should the government need to recover any funds through this program, there really are no assets within the We Charity Foundation. And so, as I said, it makes sense uh, on the side of the We Charity why they would want to do it this way. Um, There's, you know, in terms of why it would make sense for the government to agree to this maybe riskier approach for them, um, that's an open question. Uh, we know uh, the We Charity will testify uh, next week. I, I believe it's Tuesday. Anything? What are you expecting out of that? Well, I mean, in the big picture, what part of what this report today shows is that We has a very complicated structure. Um, it's a business. It's also a charity. It's also it also has multiple kind of spin-off charities. Um, that operate in various functions. And, you know, one of the things that we have said in the recent days is that they intend to review their structure and maybe simplify it or um, focus more on their 
primary mission and maybe draw a more distinct line between their business side and their charitable side. So I expect that we may hear some more elaboration on that from um, from we about you know how their structure and perhaps how they hope to modify it to to be more clear, transparent, and to deal with some of this confusion around uh, what they do and what they are. So is we a charity or is it a business with a charity arm? Well, this is part of the confusion is it's a bit of both. I mean, they, they are a business. They, they call themselves a movement, really. I mean, it's a youth-oriented international development uh, movement in some sense. They have a business side. They have a, a multiple charitable sides. Um, but as I said, it's, it becomes quite confusing when you start to look down at the various network of organizations and charities that they operate, and and why they what operate. About that fina- way. What about their financial stability, Stuart? Uh, and just as a as an operation, are they questionable? What about their finances? Well, I mean, what's really unique about We is that they own a lot of property um, compared to international other international development charities in Canada. They own substantially more. Um, assets. They have a, a building uh, on Queen Street. They have uh, other properties in Toronto that are worth over forty million dollars. So they, you know, they have those assets um, to their credit, and that's that's why they negotiated with the government in this fashion. That they're trying to protect those assets that um, you know that they use to their credit to advance their mission. As I said, the question is why the government would agree to enter into a deal structured that way. Um, do you think there's confusion within uh, within the Canadian public about whether this is a charity or an actual business that just runs programs for the government per se? Um, I mean, I don't know. I think uh, I think we seems to recognize there's some degree of confusion because they have announced they want to. Um, take another look at their structure and maybe change it in a way that's more, um, you know, palatable or understandable for the public. You know, it's a charity, so they rely upon um, public goodwill and donations and, and government funding to accomplish their, you know, their international development mission. So I think they seem to be trying to uh, adapt to the concerns that have been raised throughout this whole scandal. These hearings continue. Where you, where is this going next? Well, I mean, just in terms of this story today, I think there's a lot of outstanding questions for the government. Uh, we've asked them already. Why did the prime minister? Uh, why did the government agree um, to enter into a contract with this basically real estate holding shell of a charity? Uh, why did he not? Why was he not open about that? Why were they claiming that they were? entering into a contract with We Charity when, in fact, they were in a contract with a completely separate charity. So hopefully we'll get some answers to that and and uh, see where we go from there. Stuart Bell has been with us, investigative journalist with Global News, and you can read his latest on the Global uh, website in regard to the We Charity as the investigation continues. Stuart, thanks for the time and insight as always. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, I was absolutely astounded, and I'm thinking that those in America must be feeling a whiplash 
Uh, Donald Trump has made an about face so quickly. My goodness, it's almost turned the lights off. Uh, the president coming out and telling people to wear masks now. Uh, this after saying the whole COVID-19 thing was a hoax and uh, making fun of the press trying to get a picture of him wearing one. Uh, now you can get that picture because he has changed his mind. Uh, here's what the uh, president of the United States had to say about his change of mind. I have no problem with the masks. I view it this way. Anything that potentially can help, and that certainly can potentially help, is a good thing. I have no problem. I carry it. I wear it. You saw me wearing it a number of times, and I'll continue. And a message to the younger generation. We are imploring young Americans to avoid packed bars and other crowded indoor gatherings. Be safe and be smart. All right, let's bring in uh, Michael Trocott, Professor Emeritus, Communication Studies, Political Science, University of Michigan. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine, isolated at home. Good for you, as we all are, I guess. So your thoughts on the abrupt flip-flop of the president? Well, I think the bottom line, Scott, is it's amazing what uh, poor poll numbers will do to stiffen the back of uh, an elected official. So is this all about uh, the dropping poll numbers, or is this, a, is this advice from uh, his new campaign manager, which he, he obviously switched campaign managers last week? No, I don't think it's a new campaign manager. I mean, I, I, I think it's the team in uh, an organized fashion reacting to his poor poll numbers and trying to, uh, you know, right the ship. Uh, we certainly know, Michael, that uh, it doesn't matter what certain uh, experts say, uh, Donald Trump toes the line. What ha- What is different here? I mean, even dropping poll numbers, uh, how are they convincing the president to, to change his tune so drastically when not being able to do that in the past? Well, first of all, I, I think we've only had one good performance yesterday. We'll have to see if mm. uh, he's able to continue uh, to ha- have these uh, com- press conferences in such a constrained fashion. Um, he obviously wants to be reelected, and he had a strategy for dealing or actually not dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, and it hasn't worked out for him. Things are getting worse in the United States, and uh, that's reflected in uh, a series of polls across the last week or 10 days that have been uh, published by various news organizations. So uh, as he falls behind Joe Biden by double digits, uh, they're trying to figure out a way to um, organize or reorganize their campaign. And when they ask, when the pollsters ask Amer- uh, the American public to compare the two candidates, one area in uh, which he uh, polls the least favorably against Joe Biden is ability to deal with the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Can he sell this flip-flop to his base after calling this a hoax for so long? And again, uh, Michael, it's not as if, you know, we, we're all, uh, we all certainly are, are uh, open to new information and, and hopefully that can educate us and change our minds. But this has been almost six months. 
uh, how do you how do you how do you switch gears like this and and how do you sell this to your base after you've been telling them it's a hoax for so long? Well, uh, I think he's going to have to come clean on the data, right? Um, the 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 best evidence that it's not a hoax is that infection rates are up, hospitalization uh, rates uh, are up, and deaths are up uh, dramatically. And it's not just any particular day or week's worth of data. It's the trend uh, where the the public health specialists are trying to determine whether uh, the first phase of the pandemic uh, isn't ending very well or we've already started into a second phase. So I think I think he's had to acknowledge that the that the data don't support the story that he's been telling. So all of a sudden at this point in the pandemic he gets it. That's let's give him the benefit of the doubt here. Uh will Americans reward him for finally getting it or will they hold against him that he has taken so long to address this? Well, I mean, the, the, the exact answer to that question we don't know yet mm-hmm. uh, for the following reasons. First of all, we don't know uh, how long he's going to be able to uh, sing this change tune uh, without, you know, degrading his performances into these long, meandering uh, presentations that he makes. But the reality of the pandemic will also affect whether or not people uh, will... Uh, forgive him because he'll have to take action. The administration will have to take action uh, to turn around these increased rates of infection. And there'll also have to be progress on the development of a vaccine. There won't be any vaccine available before the election uh, to be administered to Americans, but it's conceivable that the results of the Phase three scientific tests could be optimistic enough that he could claim that uh, the the scientists will be able to defeat the pandemic. Um, Before we got here, before he got here, first it was denial and then it was distraction. Uh, Biden comes out and basically says he's given up on America. He's now doesn't even want to address it. He's not meeting with anybody. He doesn't care. And he kind of went with that approach for a while until, as you said, the numbers uh, started to to flare up. Um, again, is there enough there, even if he does pull it out of the woods here? Uh, is there enough for people to ignore uh, what he has done in the first few months of this pandemic? No, not necessarily. Uh, I mean, you know, he suffered in other comparisons with Biden as well. One of them, for example, is the degree to which uh, each of them is empathetic and uh, cares about the needs of ordinary people. Uh, he, he's uh, uh, President Trump is deeply underwater uh, in that comparison with Joe Biden. We see this playing out in the different positions uh, that the two candidates have taken with regard to continued economic assistance uh, for the American people, which is uh, in a critical period now uh, because many of the benefits that were in a legislative package passed by the Congress are about to expire at the end of the month. 
and uh, Joe Biden and uh, Nancy Pelosi and uh, Schumer have made clear what they want by way of an extension, but the Republicans can't seem to get organized, partly because they're not getting a clear signal from the Trump White House. So there will be other contrary indicators that uh, won't allow him to receive credit for his switch in position on Mm. masks, for example, all by itself. How big a a turning point is this? Uh, not so ma- not so much just simply because it's about masks and COVID nineteen, but just the change in his character. He seems he seems deflated. Uh, is this a turning point? Well, you know, in the twenty sixteen campaign, he was an outsider, and he was arguing that he had different ideas, better solutions. He could reorganize the government. Now he's an incumbent, and he has a record. And he has to be able to defend that record. He he thought that the best part of his record was the strength of the economy, at least as measured in the performance of the stock market. But then the pandemic came along. It put him in a crisis situation, and it gave uh, the American public a chance to observe his leadership capability. And he's clearly failed in that regard first of all, by refusing to accept responsibility and trying to push the responsibility off onto the governors. And secondly, uh, his refusal to use some of the powers uh, that he could have invoked in order to nationalize a testing program to make sure that personal protective uh, equipment was uh, assembled and then redistributed by the federal government. So... Um, there, there are these counterbalancing negative uh, perceptions that going to masks alone is not going to counteract. How will he answer or, or how will he react to questions on this change? Because you know he's going to get hammered with this, uh, with all of the examples that there is in the past. What does he need to say? How does he, how does he address the ongoing uh, inquiries there are going to be as to why he changed so severely? Well, of course, uh, the, the, the first tactic is to avoid taking any questions. So, he, you know, he, he didn't take very many questions yesterday. Um, I think that the White House and the campaign will try to control his exposure to the media, and he'll try to pick and choose uh, those journalists and those news outlets to which he'll speak. We, we know that he has uh, a favorite in Fox News where he expects to get uh, pretty soft treatment. Uh, leaving aside uh, Chris Wallace. So I I think they're going to minimize his contact with uh, the broad uh, swath of journalists who would ask him a lot of these hard questions. Is he a lame duck president now? What about those who who don't agree with his new approach on masks? Since he's been busy building up that for so long, what if they don't agree? Well, of course, he, he is, uh, he's not a lame duck president because he has a chance for re-election. But um, we, we'll have to see. He's, he had a very unusual strategy that almost no prior president had invoked, which was 
not to try to build the size of his coalition, but to emphasize the base that elected him, probably with an eye towards uh, developing a strategy like the one he used in 2016, where he thought he could tolerate a loss in the popular vote, but he could win enough key states to secure electoral college victory. Now he seems to be in trouble uh, in the, uh, several key states, Florida uh, among them, and uh, maybe even in Texas. I would say at the same time, I wouldn't put too much stock in the latest polls uh, because um, these polls are going to change as Election Day approaches. Most of these polls are of adults, and a few are of registered voters. When we get to likely voter models at the national level, the, the electorate becomes more Republican. So I fully expect that the race will narrow through the summer, and there won't be a double-digit lead uh, you know, when the real campaign starts in, in September, which, of course, isn't too far away now. It's maybe six or seven weeks. So then we'll have to see whether he, uh, his campaign uh, argues that his strategy has been successful and the race is tightening, when really it's a kind of an artifact of the way the polls are conducted, and also the degree to which the media pick up on that and uh, also report to the general public that the race is tightening, when in fact it, it isn't necessarily but the race is not over for Joe Biden. He's not assured of victory. There's a lot of time left, and turnout will be a big factor in the fall. Uh, could Donald Trump go from zero to hero on COVID-19? Could he end up being Mr. COVID-19 that saves the day? Uh, I, I would guess by the calendar, that is, you know, the time that's left between now mm -hmm. and November, he can't go for, uh, from uh, zero to hero. Um, that uh, essentially the, the door on that has closed. We don't know yet exactly, uh, you know, how the public is going to react to this lockdown come Labor Day. Uh, Labor Day is the end of the summer. It's the time when kids uh, are supposed to return to school, you know, or shortly thereafter. Um, and we don't know how disruptive that's going to be to family life in America, you know, especially for those with uh, children at home. So it's not just a matter of beating the infection rate. It's these corollary issues like disruption of daily life, loss of income hmm. or uh, earning power uh, that also have to factor into these assessments. You talked about how he kept his same strategy of trying to appeal to, rather than, than bring more people into the tent, just concentrate on who is there. Won't his explanation uh, on, the, on his change of heart on masks divide that base? I think that it's, I think that it's possible, although uh, I think among the members of his base, there is a pretty substantial uh, quotient of blind faith in whatever he says. So while to some people it might not make, uh, the, the reversal might not make logical sense, uh, if he says it so, uh, 
uh, or that things will get better. Most of his base is likely to believe that. Michael Trogon has been with us, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies and Political Science, University of Michigan. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Yes, you too, Scott. Good to chat. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.